Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Hiba Buakar. Hiba is assistant professor at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University. She's also the author of the absolutely fantastic For the War Yet to Come, Planning Beirut's Frontiers, published by Stanford University Press in 2018. Hiba, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Likewise, I, I'm really excited. Hibber's work is, is absolutely fascinating for anyone who's not yet read it, and I hope that you will do after our, our conversation. It looks at some of the questions that Sepad is, is looking at broadly, but, but applies it in a completely different way, in drawing on different disciplinary practices. And it's really exciting that we get to talk to her today. So, Hiba, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in I guess, uh, urban studies, in sectarianism, and, and politics in a different way, please? Yes. I mean, there are two different things that got me interested in what I work on. First, I studied architecture. So I, as an undergraduate, I got interested in issues of space and how to think about space. But not only uh, I moved beyond understanding or focusing on buildings on a specific side to thinking of the urban uh, how how people use space in general, besides only uh, the use of one building. And so I moved within the architecture education. I moved from uh, thinking about buildings to thinking about an urban space. And this is where so my interest in, in architecture eventually was focused on affordable housing, urbanization, uh, um, thinking about uh, the peripheries, uh, the informal settlements that surrounded Beirut, and working on issues and issues related to this. Uh, this intersects with my own experience and why I work on issues of violence and displacement, which is growing in Beirut uh, in, in, during the civil war and being personally with my family displaced several times. And this has actually shaped my worldview about what home is, what displacement means, and how to think about issues of war and uh, war and displacement. And so eventually, as my, my research interests start shaping up, I found myself interested in these two together, about urbanization, urban space, and war and conflict in a, what became to be a post-conflict uh, city like Beirut. Uh, so this is how my interest came to be. And of course, you, these are questions are highly political. Uh, who gets to uh, have a home, how, how, how people get displaced, how do they make homes, or are all political questions as, mar as much as they are pers personal questions. So uh, this is how I got to study what I, what I did in that book you, you've read. Fantastic. Um, can we delve deeper into some of those, those points? Just before we go into the book, please, Hiba. Um, you, you say you, you studied architecture. What was, the, what was the point of studying architecture for you? What were you wanting to do with that? It's not, um, it's not, it wasn't a very, like to be frank, it wasn't a very conscious decision. I, uh, I actually wanted to study more physics and mathematics and it was like a pragmatic, uh, right, okay. uh, pragmatic uh, decision that was really mostly encouraged by my parents that like, you know, you have to be, it's better to have a professional degree. My parents are mathematics teachers and they're like, oh, it's better to, to uh, study something else that will give you a professional degree and a job, etc. So it started like that. And I actually first found myself estranged in architecture school. I didn't feel it was what, I mean, I was always a mathematics and physics person and I found myself in a completely different space. Right. But I have to say that I'm so glad I eventually studied this because the architecture education is five years and I found myself, so it's the third year after trying to figure out what is it I'm doing there, why am I doing what I'm doing, do I really want to do architecture, I found myself finding my niche and finding 
something that I eventually became really passionate about, which is the urban dimension of space, the, uh, the urban scale yeah. um, beyond the building. And this is so eventually the last two or three years in my architecture education were more towards thinking about how to think of architecture from the urban level, but mostly focused on issues of poverty, informality, displacement, and home uh, making in uh, dire under dire conditions. And so I moved by myself. I moved completely. Of course, there were amazing mentors also for me here at the American University of Beirut. I forced me to move towards what I was mostly passionate about, which is going and doing ethnographic work, sitting in informal settlement. I, at the time, I studied Uzai. Drawing the first map for Uzai because these areas are, as usual, they are unmapped. They don't, the state do not, does not map them. They remain like just as empty land. So I, I actually ended up st sitting in Uzai for many months, mapping the area, interviewing the people. For and eventually, so they supported my professor supported that. And eventually, I did an architecture intervention, but I took the project and made it an entire year of thinking about urbanization from the periphery. And you can see the Amazing. traces of that in my current work. So I think of my book as started at that moment, way before the dissertation and way before the work that came after it. That's amazing. And I guess um, I speak for, for all of us when I say we must thank your parents for pushing you in this direction. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Hibbert, you've 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 raised a number of, of interesting points about your sort of your disciplinary background. Can you just tell people who aren't necessarily as as well versed as you about some of these concepts? Like, how do you understand space, and and what is it that you understand by home, please? Yeah. So, so what. And when you talk about spaces, is, is, there's different ways of thinking about space. Of course, the first um, idea is the natural space, uh, the, which is something that is not, you don't think of it as, as politicized. And some, but uh, uh, through architecture school or through architecture education or urban planning education, you come to think of the social production of space and the way in which whatever room you're living in, a classroom, whatever space you are using, a wall, a balcony, a street, a street light, a bench, uh, it is produced by a, a lot of social relations, not only social relations, but socioeconomic and political relations that makes a certain space that way and makes it possible for you to use it that way. And how, for example, the way people end up using space is what makes the space what it is. So you can have a room if you put chairs and turn it into an education space. That's when it becomes a classroom and people can have education in it. If, you, if the social relations around it make it into something else, it will be a different kind of space and people will have a different kind of experience of that space. So you come to, so you move from understanding space as something that's just there through this kind of education to understanding how it gets produced. And this is the school of thought I, I, I come from, which is always thinking about how certain geographies, how certain spaces get all the forces that make it possible or impossible to do certain things. And of so, course, home is a much more complicated concept, with it, and also it has space, how people, uh, it has space at the heart of it, how people end up making home in certain places, how do they decide where to live, or what, uh, sometimes it's decided for them where they can live or where can't, can't live. Or, all of these are socioeconomic and political questions uh, that not everyone necessarily thinks about them, but this is how space, this is how we think about space that is socially produced. Um, and so people always, try to make turn a space, a certain space, they, for example, get an apartment or a single family house, and, I tr and they try to make it home. And the way people make something as their home, a space in their home, is very much entrenched on how they were raised, what is the situation around them, how, what's their uh, ability in terms of wealth, 
terms of class, in terms in, ter in Lebanon, it's about sectarianism too, uh, where you can live and where you can't live is very much shaped by the uh, post-war kind of sectarian geographies. And so these are the questions uh, that what we think about when we think about space, is that uh, the socioeconomic and social processes that produce certain spaces as such. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I was reading some spatial work for, for the book that I've just finished, and I was reading a number of theorists, but, but the work of Doreen Massey really struck me, and she, she talks about space as this site of possibility, and I think that really strikes what you're, what you're saying there about the different ways that things can play out in, in space. But who are you drawing on? Which, which type of theorists are you drawing on in your understanding of space? My uh, my first encounter with, with like I have to say with an undergrad is that a professor Professor Marwan Gandur who who first time in, um, uh, basically gave me or gave us I have to say in a class uh, Lefebvre the production of space as a book like a 17 year old person encountering these ideas for the first time right wow yeah school. so credit him for reading Lefebvre at that age and rereading re Lefebvre over the years but eventually I mean eventually I have to say. What, the way I work is not following one theorist, but actually trying to understand how Lefebvre, how Doreen Massey, how Foucault, how um, um, local, local theorists, people who are working on urban spaces in, in Lebanon, Muna Fawaz, Muna Harib, Marwan Gandur, all these people who come to influence how you end up understanding, um, with the understanding how space is produced. So thinking about... Rather than being, I mean, at least this is my point of view, rather than being ideological and in terms of like taking sides, quote unquote, in <laughs> yeah. theoretical space, instead of, instead I try to learn from all these theories and trying different ways of understanding what's going on. And of course, uh, I believe that all, everyone, all, all the people who are working on these issues have something to teach you. And so I eventually draw on on more, most of the people who uh, are known to be like spatial theorists to try to understand what's going on. So I don't follow one school of thought, but I've learned from all of them. But also trying to think uh, of this series in relationship to the people who are working on the ground, who are people who are theorizing from the global south. So trying not to privilege only the Eurocentric view of, for example, we're talking here about the Middle East, the Eurocentric view of the, uh, the production of urban space in the Middle East, but also to really engage with local theorists who are theorizing from global south and specifically from the Middle East or here in the case of Beirut, trying to put all these theoretical uh, uh, um, point of view together to try to, to or try to illustrate uh, a picture of what's going on, at least from the sites I work on, which are the southeast peripheries of, of Beirut. Yeah. Can you and also going from there to theorize from the southeast peripheries from Beirut. So doing all of this to think of, uh, to study these sites, but then theorizing from these sites back to the Be Le Beirut, Lebanon, the Middle East, and the global world as we think about the future, as we think about issues of climate change, about quote unquote terrorism, etc. That's it's fascinating. It's really really uh, important work that you're doing, um, Hibba. Can you tell us a, a couple of, of people that, that listeners should look at in terms of, of the local spatial theorists that you mentioned, please? Who should people be looking at? Aside from yourself, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. I mean, the people who are at the American University of Beirut, urban um, people, the urban and um, the, and the urban planning program, 
definitely the most well-known uh, people are Mona Harb and Mona Fawaz, and they're two of my favorites, people who look at the politics of space, space making, and they've just started, and Huayd al-Haris, who work on post-war reconstruction, and they've just started an urban lab that's doing fascinating work at the American University of Beirut with a, with a, a large number of students and uh, graduates. Who are and people who are interested in urban uh, urban questions in general. So these are some of my favorite uh, people working here. There are other people who are um, uh, who produced important work about Lebanon before, and right now they run other institutions. Um, uh, so oh, these are also um, uh, important people. The person who actually shaped my my base, like initially my thinking about architecture is Marwan Randur, who also has some work on Lebanon. Um, there's also um, Trying to remember, um, these are these are basically some of the people that I would highly recommend uh, people sure. look at their work. Well, thank you for for sharing those, and and I certainly hope but to I, speak I to some to, of them later. But, yeah, and I, I have to say that there are like number of um, of recent books that are amazing on the urban urbanism in Lebanon that I can send you a number of um, uh, read, like, like a few texts later but so many so many interesting books are being published on Lebanon right now especially from the urban dimension yeah and, and many of them are actually forthcoming too that's very exciting and I, I'm aware of some of them and and again I hope to have some of those authors on the podcast in the in the not too distant future uh, here but before we get to the book, and I'm keen to spend quite a bit of time talking through that, um, you, you talked about about drawing on sort of the 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 global south approaches and the Beirut specific and the Lebanese Middle Eastern specific approaches to urban space. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you mean by that, please? In terms of um, how to theorize, or how yeah, to, how, how to how to theorize space. I mean, so uh, for the longest time, like like in most like in most um, disciplines, I mean, for the longest time, we, we we used to, or at least the way that we used to study people used to study spaces like that is by taking theories that are prevalent usually in our classrooms, which are the the, the, the theories theoreticians we we all know usually, but they usually have a very much like borrowing, bringing these lenses from the West and trying to see what's happening here. Um, through that lens, which is not an issue, but doing that only is is not sufficient. You know, we are at a moment in which we have to think that um, first, most of the urbanization, uh, the the world is almost getting to 70% urbanized, and most of the urban, this urbanization is happening in the global south. And so, actually, the global cities of the global south, and we have to um, uh, we have to it's, they have a lot to teach us about what's going on when we think about urban space about life in cities about uh, about uh, quality of life about the environment etc so we cannot keep just privileging the eurocentric uh, ideas and trying to understand the global south from that point of view we have to actually study what's going on and i'm all for ethnographic really long engagement on the ground trying to, to know what's going on and then trying to speak from cities of the global south and i'm i mean the global south can be a, is, is two things can be is can be referred to as a space like cities of the global south but also the global south as an idea in which like there are inner, inner cities neighborhoods that have uh, that can be considered there's a global south and the global north yeah. but i'm just talking here for now in terms of thinking about the global south as an as a thinking of it from cities of the global south and trying to uh, trying to speak back to theories, trying to theorize from the global south and uh, to decolonize uh, urban theory, to think about the post-colonial urban theory. All of these things are necessary to, to basically 
ask new questions, answer questions in a new way, and try to save what is left of our planet. <laughs> yeah, and that's such a commendable and indeed important task. Um, for, for, for many a reason that we can spend, spend myriad podcasts talking through. But unfortunately, we don't have time to do that today. So, so let's, let's go into the book, the Hibba, if we may. Um, on, on the first chapter, in the first chapter, page one, you, you say something that I think is really so, so very important to the type of project that you're doing. And if I may, I'm, I'm going to read it out. Uh, In Lebanon, most of the studies of the topic are political theses or historiographies on the relationship between sectarianism and the formation of the nation-state, debating, for example, whether sectarianism represents a traditional characteristic, a construct of colonial and or modernization processes, or a project of class domination. By contrast, this book focuses on understanding how sectarianism is constructed, lived, and practiced. And I think that's what's absolutely fascinating about your book, that it's, it's drawing on the everyday experiences of how sect-based difference plays out in lives, in people's lives, and how it affects what they can and cannot do. So, can you tell us a bit, Hibba, about the book? What are you trying to do in it, please? I mean, there, there, are, many, there are many things I was trying to achieve in the book, of course, like any book, but I, just to speak to, the, to, the, to the, the lines you just read, I mean, I have... I, I'm, I'm, I have a political project from this. There is a problem in the way, and I'm, I'm glad so much work is being done right now on debunking this, but there is a problem in the way sectarianism is about, sectarianism in the Middle East is thought about or narrated, especially in like news media and international communities, as if people are born into a sectarian identity or even like born into some, born into sectarian, and things cannot change. And for a person who grew up, who was born and grew up for most of my life here in, in Beirut, this actually bothers me a lot because it does, it stops people from having any hope in the possibility of that things will change. And, and from the project, I try to think, from this book, I try to think that, start to think how actually sectarianism is lived. Because if you live in a place like Beirut, Lebanon, you know that this changes over time. And what sectarianism is, it keeps changing with, a, with, with as the socioeconomic and political situations in Lebanon, in the region, in the world change. And so, as so, it was basically a a challenge. Like I wanted challenge for myself to see how can you actually study something like that and try to debunk these myths that it's something stable, static, stuck in time, something that doesn't change that you inherit and you're stuck in it. And to think more about how is it being produced, negotiated, and contested, and actually that sectarianism changes over time. And I find, despite how, despite the dystopia in, in, in most of the sectarian logic, I find a little bit of hope in the fact that finding out that actually sectarianism changes over time. And you can, because this is where you can think that it's not something that is set in stone, but actually something you can work towards changing, getting rid of, or whatever is the political project of social change for a much better way, way of living together as different religious groups. And so this is, this, way, this is, in terms of responding to that specific point, this is where I come from to it. Sure. So can you tell the reader then, what is the war yet to come, please? Uh, sorry, the listener. The readers will know what the war yet to come is, but can you tell the <laughs> listeners what the war yet to come is? So, uh, this is actually started from, this, is, this title came up from doing the field research, because if you, 
it was very surprising to me as I was doing field research. And you know, just to preface this, I, I when I started this project, I didn't start it about sectarianism specifically, or uh, what, the project started actually about thinking about why after the end of the civil war we had so much empty housing, vacant housing units on the peripheries, on the south east peripheries of Beirut, where five family lives. And yeah. so I became curious to know why are how did these massive housing uh, housing projects suddenly appeared who why are they vacant and uh, who is planning to, who is the target uh, population for these spaces and this is how the project started and when i went to do field research and like asking about who are the developers who's living here where are i just suddenly learned that most of the apartments were actually despite the fact that they were vacant they were bought and they were bought I found out by war-displaced families who were squatting in the in the war square neighborhoods in, in, in Beirut and around Beirut, and uh, they were threatened by eviction in post-war in the post-war project in Lebanon. And so they uh, were they bought these apartments or put down payments on these apartments while waiting in their squatter squatted houses to get uh, compensation packages. Right. And so from from the question of vacant apartments, I started learning about war displacement, about Lebanese the decision that Lebanese government took about what kind of compensation packages they will give. Of course, um, the, what we call, if you want to use the neoliberal economic order that emerged after the end of the war, supported by all these international aid organizations that were pushing the Lebanese government to take that stand. So they decided to give like small monetary packages and tell the people to just get out from where they've lived for 30 years. And so this is how this these housing projects were responding to that kind of a geography that was uh, and the political geography that was happening around that time and so this is where i started getting interested about war displacement about homemaking about uh, real estate markets uh, after the end of the war and so for the war yet to come is basically fr emerged from conversation with the people who even if you come right now to beirut i mean the war supposedly ended in 1990 people are always saying even yesterday i was sitting with my dad and he's like so what do you think do you think there is a war is the war coming so what hmm. is, is there a war so the people are always here thinking about when is the next war going to come. But what is the war yet to come talks about is not whether the war is going to come or not. This is not, it doesn't really matter if a war is going to, is going to quote unquote come in the future. But actually what is, what is trying to highlight is how these kind of expectation and anticipation and fear of the future ends up shaping the present geographies. And so this is where the war yet to come is coming from. But this is, this is, this is a very common discourse here in Beirut, yeah. the expectation of future wars and how it ends up shaping people's decisions of where they live, what do they do with their lives, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, this is not innocent. It gets, um, I don't know if you, people have been following what's going on in Lebanon right now. It gets intersected with uh, right now populist national politics, uh, fundamentalist religious discourses. Uh, mm. All of these come together to even keep this this expectation very alive, you know, and then people will uh, be scared of asking for change, of going down to the streets, uh, asking for water, asking for electricity, asking for better economy because of this fear. Um, so the war yet to come is more about how it shapes the future than whether the war is going to come or not. Sure. So how did you go about doing it then? What, what, was, your, what was your methodology? Who did you speak to? So I... Um, I, I, as I said, I started from this uh, place, uh, from this area called Sahra Shwefet, where as uh, living in a, uh, around that area, I was struck by the massive amount of housing that was mushrooming after the end of the war in the 90s. And so this is where I started from. And when I start, as I said, when I start asking 
who's going to live in these apartments? Why are they vacant? Who bought them? Uh, people start, I, I start um, being told that the people actually who bought these houses live in areas like Haimadi, which is the second site. So um, I do mostly ethnographic work. I do very long, this, this, this book took 15 years of field research. So it's based on wow. 15 years of field research, plus the fact that I was born and raised here and the fact that I practiced architecture and planning. So sure. it's very much a long-term kind of very long-term, very embedded, um, based on a very an, a serious embeddedness in the sites themselves. Sure. So, so and then from there, I went high on it. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so we should expect your next book in twenty thirty four. Maybe, or I should do it. I should do it differently. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it, it shows here, but it's so very rich. It's so very detailed. It's so full of, 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 of data, of reflections, of, of observations. And it, it's such a powerful read that it, I mean, it shows that, that it's taken 15 years to sort of, to, to brew, to ferment and to, to mature. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I really do recommend it for, for people. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things that was interesting in doing this kind of research is actually because I didn't, I didn't, for example, I didn't know that uh, uh, for people familiar with uh, with politics in Lebanon, 2008 was another turning point in the politics here uh, when there was like a small, like uh, small uh, battles that were reminder for people of the civil of the civil war, which called May 7 events. Um, it's basically a mini civil war that happened. Uh, in Beirut and around it, and actually, I had started doing research before that. And even you sense you sense the ghost that ghost of the war yet to come before. So it was interesting for me to do research before 2008, and then I didn't know that was 2008 was going to come, and then after 2008. And actually, it became much clearer to me how people live. Uh, uh, these kind of fears end up shaping how people live in their everyday spaces. And actually. My, the main people, the main actors I focus on are religious political organizations who were militias. Most of them were militias during the civil war, and they ended up mutating into religious political organizations that right now uh, share, do the power sharing uh, of, uh, in the Lebanese government. And this is where like um, most of the problems come from. And so basically, these civil war militias turned the religious political organizations are still the main actors that shape urban space in Lebanon. And so I ended up focusing on them rather than thinking about the state thinking about these religious political organizations that are the state, that they shape the state, but are also operate outside it. So they operate real estate and housing markets. Some of them have military uh, arsenal. Like they, they, they have social, social, um, social services, etc. So, of course, on different scales. And try to think about how these religious political organizations end up also benefiting from this from this fa from the fact that people are always fearing that there is a war coming and so they end up not questioning uh, yeah. these allegiances and this this i guess reproduces what you're talking about when you say sectarian geographies right yeah i mean the the of course um, sectarian geographies are produced mainly by are, are shaped mainly by the practices like for example in sahra shwaifet i look uh, uh, I, I, part of the chapter looks about the zoning and how the zoning changes over time, so, changes so many times over time, uh, as the, for example, two actors, Hezbollah and the Progressive Socialist Party, PSP, end up sometimes being allies, sometimes fighting wars, negotiating, and how the area ended up changing between industrial and residential, and the current situation, which is actually the lace work uh, uh, of in the, the lace work zoning in the area where like 
um, the, the area is both industrial and residential, and who ends up being suffering from this kind of uh, intercon interlocked geographies are the people who live there who sometimes have to deal with industrial waste, sometimes have to be, deal with very serious environmental issues yeah. uh, because of that competition over the zoning. Um, and so the sectarian geographies are geographies that are not set in stone, but are always changed as these parties negotiate uh, their relationships over time. And then they change the zoning accordingly, uh, roads change, they get built, they get eliminated, um, um, you name it, you know, yeah. in terms of, of shaping urban space. So what are the structures that shape and reshape, indeed, this the, these sectarian geographies then, would you say? I mean, um, I look specifically I look specifically at the tools. Um, so there is a... Um, I mean, I, I'm currently in the urban planning field, and there is this idea, uh, dominant kind of idea in urban planning, that somehow when you plan, you plan for quote-unquote progress. Uh, there is a, somehow an idea of a linear idea of time that things, if you just plan, whether you plan it for a city or you plan it for your day, that somehow there is a, like this idea that eventually everyone will be better. And this book contributes to a different idea about planning, that we have to think about how planning sometimes, the tools of planning, get used in a different kind of context and used in a different kind, as actually tools of conflict and not only, quote unquote, peace. Because planning has been associated, or at least planners like to associate their field with peace and order and progress. But actually, if you look at how planning tools, in the end, planning tools are tools. And they get used. Uh, the outcome of these tools are very much shaped by the politics surrounding the use of these tools. And so this book tries to contribute to these kind of conversations by thinking about uh, how planning ends up being a tool of conflict as much as that of peace and order, and being very careful in thinking about that, and rather than just repeating on and on that if you plan, it's just peace, and if you plan, yeah. it's just order. No, this is not how it works. Planning tools can be used in all sorts of ways. Sure. Hibbert, we've taken up so much time, but if I may, can I ask one final question? Yeah, sure. So how do how do people operate within these these sort of sectarian geographies? How do how does agency operate? How do they challenge, contest these sectarian identities? I mean you talk about a, a more positive view of things, but but what are people doing to try and circumvent and, and contest their own sectarian identities, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the uh, first is, is many people don't don't try not to play into this kind of fear, fear geographies of fear. But in general, many people in Beirut, let's speak, speaking from Beirut, are trying to organize to cross this sectarian division to try to think about. So, for example, taking planning tools rather than just assuming that if you do this, you end up with this with this outcome. Taking planning tools and try to use them as a way to open conversations between people about a shared uh, living space, how we're going to coexist in this space, rather than just like thinking about what PSP is going to do or the Sunni Future Movement is going to do or uh, Hezbollah or Harakat Amal, whatever. Trying to think actually of the materiality of of a shared space and trying to get people to think together uh, about what to do uh, in terms of public space, in terms of shared space, in terms of the environment, and hoping that this will open a different kind of future or thinking about the future beyond the expectations of war that ends up shaping the present in most situations here. Um, so this is some of the work that be, uh, has, that's being done by all sorts of groups. I mean, people are familiar, probably people familiar with Lebanon are familiar with what Beirut Madinians try to do. Part of the work Beirut Madinians try to do is do that, is use 
planning tools to try to start conversations about uh, our right to, right to the city, public space, etc. There are other groups, public works, etc., that are doing very similar situations, trying to use, uh, for example, the legal agenda, trying to use um, um, the legal system to mm -hmm. bring social justice, social spaces justice around um, landfills, around um, uh, fumes, around uh, you know generators. So try to to use the legal system. So different groups are doing different things to try to break out from this sectarian hegemony, if I want to call it, uh, the fear of the war or the war yet to come, and try to think uh, outside of that or bring people around a different kind of present and expectation of a different kind of future. Sure. It's uh, and and there is there is as I said there is hope and all sorts of things because I want to reiterate because of these sectarian geographies are always changing are always being negotiated are always being drawn and redrawn people are always challenging them and these are not geographies it's not like for example in Sahra Shweifet between Shweifet and Sahra Shweifet there's a wall people oh, people buy from each other the people use the streets together there is a, these are geographies where there is hope in the negotiations and the conversations and the relationships that people continue to have. And this is what keeps shaping and reshaping sectarian geographies. And I think this is where the hope lies, that in breaking down um, this kind of yeah. Um, yeah. spaces of violence, basically. And I, I really love that that's the message you've ended on, that there is hope in spite of this fear of the war yet to come, in spite of this this reproduction and reshaping of, of sectarian geographies and sectarian identities, there is hope. And and I, I love that, that that's the message you've ended on. So thank you so much. And thank, thank you, you for your time, Hiba. It's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you about, about your work. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've learned so very much. And um, I, I look forward to 2034 and reading the next one. <laughs> thank you, Simon. It was great to chat with you about uh, these topics. And I look forward to future conversations. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening. Until next time.